0: Welcome to Citywire Selector podcast. Let's talk about ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, deputy editor at Citywire Selector, and joining me today is Jane Ambercher, global head of sustainability at BNP Paribas Asset Management, and. Adam Kanzer, Head of Stewardship for Americas at BNP Paribas Asset Management. Jane and Adam, thank you for joining me today. As everybody knows, as part of this podcast, we are focusing on all nitty-gritty issues of ESG and its implementation in portfolios. So from what I know, you've just recently done quite a big study which focused very heavily on an as aspect, social aspect of ESG, because we all know we've been through a very difficult um, couple of months starting from COVID-19. And that resulted, obviously, uh, in investors looking at social issues in more, much more detail because there are uh, worries about, well, public health safety, but not only that, but also job losses. And how do we kind of like take the world forward and get it to a better place. So Jane, Adam, um, I don't know who would like to start with this, but can you walk me through the key takeaways from the study and what it actually meant? What were the main results? Sure,
1: happy to do that and thanks for the invitation to be here today. We wanted to really kind of take the pulse of the market and figure out how many other investors were also increasing their focus on the S in ESG and And we found that, in fact, many of them were. Uh, So first of all, about a quarter of the respondents said that ESG overall had become more of a focus or more important as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, But one of the really key findings was that the S Mm -hmm. in the ESG was becoming more important. So 70% of the respondents indicated that it would become either very or extremely important, both through but also after the crisis. Mm-hmm. So that's a big number in absolute terms. Another interesting element was that the E or the E and the G before the price, the crisis had been kind of a higher priority than the S for most investors. And mm-hmm. when we see kind of through the crisis and their anticipation coming out of the crisis, is that the S would actually have more of an equal weighting. So that's a kind of significant Mm -hmm. rebalancing, in a way, between the the three different kind of key themes. One other key point Mm -hmm. that I think was really interesting was that 79% of the respondents said that they expected social issues to have a positive long-term impact on both investment Mm -hmm. performance and risk management. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't just about, you know, worrying about, you know, worker safety and resilience. It was also very much driven from a financial perspective, although the biggest motivation for managing and looking at S was around having a positive impact. It was Mm -hmm. seen as being aligned with having a positive financial impact. So very much a kind of win-win perspective among the 130 investors that participated in, in the study. So institutional investors.
0: Now it's a very interesting development that investors started putting more attention on uh, the social aspect of ESG. But why do you think this has happened in the first place? And secondly, what does it mean for portfolio construction or asset allocation?
2: Sure. So I think one one thing to get clear um, is that the S the social issues have been critically important for investors for a very long time. Um, And if you look back at the roots of socially responsible investing, all the way back to the beginning, it started with an S issue. It started with South Africa and and, and apartheid. Um, And employee relations issues were always kind of front and center. But it is new, I think, for very large uh, global asset managers to be thinking about the S. And and I think one reason for that is because uh, environmental issues can in some cases be a little bit more easily quantified mm-hmm. um, and plugged into and plugged into mo- existing models. Whereas social issues tend to be interpreted as sort of fuzzy, you know, hard to interpret. But if you think about it, the workforce is the closest thing to us, right? It, it, it's obvious that, that the health and safety and well-being of the workforce is going to be critical to long-term performance. So we we've sort of in in a certain sense I guess investors have finally come back around to recognizing that those things that are closest to home are actually important, you
0: know. Mm -hmm. So societal factors, one issue with them is that they are hard to define. There aren't very much well-defined frameworks out there that will help investors to compare and contrast uh, company A with company B on social metrics. So in the absence of the standard, which obviously European authorities, for example, are trying to introduce, but are not even getting started on, I think, um, opposite to environmental issues, what do you as an asset manager do now? How do you develop this specific uh, framework?
1: Sure. Well, again, I think this isn't an area that we're we're starting from scratch. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's true that I think there's less standardization versus a number of environmental metrics, and and it's been you know less of a focus in a relative sense for a, no, a number of regulatory bodies in different regions. Um, but we really think that kind of S-related data offer value, valuable and underutilized insights into you know a company's culture. So how can they attract and retain talent? Um, operational excellence, uh, and also reputational and regulatory risk, if you think about supply chain issues, for example. So we have our own proprietary ESG scoring model. We cover about 12,000 companies, so big coverage. So in order to use a metric in our database, we have to be able to be comfortable that that we can have relatively good coverage of of, the different metrics that we're looking at. So on average, we look at about 36 metrics per sector, Mm -hmm. of which 11 on average are social metrics. And we group those into four different categories under the S pillar. So a very structured approach. Uh, There are human capital management. So treatment of um, human capital, including training, employee turnover, uh, diversity, discrimination. The second one is around health and safety. So health, health and safety programs, injury rates, fatality rates. The third one is around external stakeholders. So metrics relative to supply chain management, local communities, product safety, of of course, is a big issue. And then the fourth one is around social incidents. Mm. So what controversies are taking place in the context of of any number of social issues? So we look at those four uh, different kind of S themes consistently across sectors, but the weights that we'll assign to different indicators will vary depending on whether you're looking at a healthcare company or a real estate company, Mm -hmm. for example.
0: Mm -hmm. And can you give me an example, well, more generic than specific names, because I know that you can't disclose them, but in terms of how do you kind of like decide in this specific case, okay, we're going to look at them at this metric and that metric, and then if it's a healthcare company, it's going to be something else. So if you can illustrate it even purely theoretically, that would be great.
1: Sure. So, I mean, when we go through the different sectors, um, it's really kind of both the top down you know, um, Mm -hmm. kind of a sense check in terms of which are the most material indicators backed up by a bottom-up test around both um, data availability, as I mentioned. So sometimes we'd love to measure things consistently across a different sector, across Mm -hmm. regions, but if the data just doesn't exist or you're not comfortable with the data, then of course you can't use it. Um, We also tend to try to preference, um, a focus on actual performance, as opposed to the existence of a policy. So if you take a topic like diversity, for example, you know, you could think about policies, programs, and then performance. So you could have a policy on diversity, right? And you can check a box and you can give a company points for that. It may or may not mean very much. Mm -hmm. Then you could have a program. You could have, you know, a mentoring program, or you could have um, succession planning that has a focus on diversity. And then you can look at performance, right? Which is where we try to allocate the, the biggest weight in our scoring model, which is like, okay, well, show me, you know, show me the goods. Like what, what kind of diversity do you actually have? And this is where it can get hard in some of the S data. You know, if you think about um, data points where you could think about, um, you know, well training programs, for example, you could have a high number of training programs, but you may not always have the granularity around what kind of training program was that, right? Did you have a training program around unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. which could really support progress around diversity and hiring? Or were they training programs on health and safety, right? Which Mm -hmm. of course are also useful, but may not be as directly relevant. So sometimes the nuance or the, the detail or granularity that you need to be able to really kind of you know, line up the dots isn't always there, but generally speaking, we go through that process around top down from a framework perspective, what makes sense. You know, you'd have a higher weight for social controversies in in the consumer goods sector than you might have in, you know, utilities, for example. Um, But then you also need to make sure that you're looking at data points where you have good access and, and good comparability.
0: Yes, that makes perfect sense. It's just comparing apples to apples, not apples and oranges, so to say. Well, Adam, I was wondering if uh, you could give examples. of, for example, looking back at 2020, um, Engagements with companies, have you noticed any changes in, again, like social aspect of ESG, or maybe that you had to vote more actively on certain things, or maybe the shareholder activity increased, for example, in certain ways. One example I can think of is Black Lives Matter was so big this last year, goodness me. Um, So, yeah, if you can give some examples, that would be great. Sure.
2: Social, you know, social issues have been core to our approach for a long time, and and mm-hmm. uh, almost every engagement we have has some sort of social aspect to it. But this past year, obviously, COVID has been has been really front and center um, for you know for for many many investors, and so virtually every conversation you had with a the company, there was some COVID element to it. Mm-hmm. You know, how is the company managing the crisis? Um, how are you ensuring that frontline workers are protected? Um, you know, do you have do they have adequate PPE? Do they have uh, social distancing in place? Testing all of that, right? Um, had some interesting conversations about the benefits. So I, I think you know it's at a it's an, an important moment to take a look at certain sort of key safeguards. So for example, paid sick leave,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Paid sick leave, which historically is you know an important good benefit to have. but when you're faced with a pandemic, it actually becomes a key element of long-term risk management. Um, if you have a large frontline workforce and you're not providing um, clearly communicated paid sick leave, people are coming to work, your workplace can become a disease vector, right mm-hmm. So we' when, when companies are saying, well look no we have we're, we, we've added some paid sick leave policies, we've added hazard pay, Um, we're asking, you know, which of these policies are temporary and which of these policies are going to remain in place because these kinds of things are going to happen again. uh, And we need to make sure that we're prepared for them for the next time. And so things that were a good idea in a crisis are probably a good idea Mm -hmm. long-term. Also, how are you applying the same policies, the same protections within your supply chain? Are you ensuring that your suppliers, workers are also adequately protected and that you're taking account of this when you're when you're placing orders? Um, The I think the most interesting aspect of the conversations this year, and I think we'll continue into this next year, is uh, trying to get a better understanding of um, what lessons have been learned and what are the companies taking forward into the future about resilience? So, you know, how does the board get an independent view of working conditions and workforce concerns? Um, How do we incentivize long-term resilience? Uh, And that goes for, you know, all sorts of capital allocation decisions. It goes to executive compensation. Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of benefits are going to stay in place? Um, what have you learned about communicating with your workforce, you know, that you're going to carry through into the future? So I think those can those conversations are going to continue. They've been they've been really interesting. I think they're they're critically important. I don't think we have all the answers. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a lot of very good questions. We don't have all the answers. But, you know, let's not waste a crisis. Let's 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 try to learn from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and really quickly, just to sort of, um, you know, clarify, not clarify, did uh, Um, to be clear here that the S is a very diverse topic. You know, It covers yes. a lot of areas, right? So we're also, that quest, those conversations about resilience, of course, also relate to executive compensation and wealth inequality. So we're having lots of conversations about that. We're gonna be taking that forward. What's the role of the compensation committee? Maybe they should also be looking at the workforce um, and the balance between how the CEO is paid and the typical worker is paid. Um, we've always we've had a long-term focus on human rights and corporate supply chains with, mm-hmm. with particular focus on um, migrant workers that find themselves in conditions of, of bonded labor around the world and we're a board member of the global network initiative which is a mm-hmm. uh, multi-stakeholder human rights organization focused on freedom of expression and privacy in the digital sphere and uh, when they're faced with uh, government restrictions and so that's uh, kind of a core fo- core piece of our human rights work and that will also continue so the s is like it's you know it's a very very broad topic They, they come brings through a lot of, a lot of different themes
0: mm-hmm. um very interesting points adam what I was also wondering because you are in charge of stewardship for Americas I think uh, sitting in London uh, there is a lot going on that you can kind of like look at the US and say, well, they don't maybe care as much about ESG as Europe does, because there was so much regulatory push in Europe specifically to get environmental issues, sources, and then they haven't seen quite as much, well, maybe even just noise being heard from the US. So being in charge of that specific part of the world uh, and stewardship there, what What do you think? Do you think the companies in the U.S. are taking it seriously? Or maybe they are indeed lagging slightly behind Europe in that regard?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, the U.S. has sort of always lagged behind Europe in in that regard. (laughs) And and I think that's Mm -hmm. still true. But um, in some respect, I think I I found that a, a lot of companies are further ahead than the investors are. Um, you know, and I think it's because they have to deal with these issues day to day. You know, they, they understand that these things, uh, these things relate to the, to the value of the business and to, and to, and to day-to-day operations, um, but they haven't been getting the questions from the investors. Um, you know, it's always very interesting to me when we engage with a company because they don't have a policy um, let's say on supply chain human rights, or uh, as I said before, on migrant worker protections. We had a very mm-hmm. started a very interesting engagement with it with a tech company um, about a year and a half ago, I, I guess, um, that had a very low rating on on Know the Chains benchmark for forced labor. Um, and we found once we started talking to them um, that they actually did have a pretty comprehensive program, and they actually really understood the risks that migrant workers faced, but they hadn't disclosed it. You know, and why haven't they disclosed it? Well, they haven't been getting a lot of questions from investors. It didn't seem like a super important issue to talk about. So they've improved their disclosures. They're establishing board oversight. They're, they're, they're being more rigorous about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think sometimes, you know, there is sometimes lack of disclosure means the company's not doing anything and they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other times it means, well, we just haven't been getting pressure from our investors. And mm-hmm. yeah, of course, we're managing that issue. You know, the other the other quick thing, um, we started an engagement uh, in Europe on uh, corporate climate lobbying and Mm -hmm. uh, working with a lot of investors. We got a bunch of companies, 14 or 15 companies, to start issuing public reports about how their lobbying aligns with the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, Shell, BP, Total, you know, major, major companies. Then I started talking to the U.S. oil and gas companies and I say, well, look, your peers are doing it. And the initial answer is, oh, well, you know, they're European. You know, like there's this there's this difference that, well, they're, European companies are different. European companies have a different perspective on sustainability. Like, well, mm-hmm. you're all oil and gas companies, right? I mean, your peers, if they thought it was good for their business, it, it ought to be good for your business too, you know? So there is a bit of a lag. I think we're catching up. And I think also that the pandemic, um, sort of in an interesting way, As you said before, has really surfaced these issues for a lot of investors. And I think a lot of investors are raising these questions for the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I hope that'll continue. You know, I hope that once things settle down, we don't simply go back to business as usual.
0: And Jane, you mentioned the data gap, which is kind of like one of the biggest issues uh, for ESG at large. But then again, where can asset managers start? And maybe some initiatives that I think were mentioned before, like for Know Your Chain, uh, I've heard about this one that's on uh, kind of, again, labor standards and things like that, um, and supply chains. So where can asset managers start the groundwork to actually build up this uh, adequate database of ESG data? And so Social data specifically?
1: Yeah, well, look, there's a global um, ESG data race on right now, right? I mean, there is a huge push uh, from many, many different quarters for companies to be uh, providing Consistent, reliable, uh, preferably audited data on a number of key ESG data points. Um, so it's something we wholeheartedly support uh, at BNP Paribas Asset Management. I'm on the board of CDP, um, mm-hmm. so really looking at environmental data. Um, a number of my colleagues are are represented in in different initiatives. I'm also a member of the TCFD, mm-hmm. and um, we as as BNP at Group are involved in the forthcoming task force on nature related financial disclosures.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Adam mentioned some of the different kind of S related initiatives. So it's it's something that we're, we're all very focused on. Um, I think that we've seen a ton of acquisitions and, and mergers and also uh, new uh, business launches, um, looking also at, at AI and big data across any number of, of regions and jurisdictions. So I think it's a really exciting time. Uh, we're very lucky internally to have a quantitative research group uh who work very closely with us on our ESG data models. So they help us around data acquisition, cleaning, uh scoring, data, you know, normalization. So we can bring in and, and compile different data sources and, and put them into one model in a kind of consistent and and thoughtful way. So that's something that, you know, you're never finished with as an investor. I think we've been lucky to have been doing it for quite a while and had significant resource to really be able to build our own approach. I think that you know it's a bit concerning to fully rely on a third party provider where you don't mm-hmm. really have the ability to kind of look through to some of that data. Um, but Share Action in the UK is working on the, the workplace or workforce disclosure initiative, um, I think really modeled on CDP to push mm-hmm. for more consistent uh, data around a number of different S indicators. Uh, so I think that's an important development, and I think, of course, between SASB and GRI and and different standards that are evolving, pushed by growing regulatory interest, we will continue to see more progress around uh, S data points. Um, mm-hmm. We're also looking at them from an in, from an investment perspective, not just from risk management, but we're actually in the process of finalizing a new fund, which will be called the Inclusive mm-hmm. Growth Fund, looking right. at really prioritizing companies that do a good job of you know managing human capital thinking about uh, more equitable distribution of, of income looking at, at tax payments and transparency executive compensation a lot of these different topics uh, so that's something that we're also really excited about about you know being able to kind of put capital to work and I think that's yes. going to be a big theme as well for this year, not just on the E side, but also on the S side around, you know, how can we really use our investments? Yes, to um, look for you know long-term attractive returns so we can pay pensions, while also you know, investing in global resilience, right? Which really mm-hmm. means focusing on sustainability. And in our global sustainability strategy that we published in 2019, um, we identified the three E's, we call them, Mm-hmm. which are the energy transition, environmental sustainability and equality and inclusive growth. And we really look at these three topics as, you know, the fundamental preconditions to a sustainable economic future which we re- rely on as investors to generate returns for our clients. And I think another really forward-looking theme is the fact that, you know, you know, the energy transition is is completely linked with in- equality and inclusive growth right? I mean, you can't talk about achieving the Paris Agreement without thinking about a just transition. And in addition, you know, educating women and girls around the world is a a kind of one of the key elements in achieving, you know, uh, the Paris Agreement and, and tackling climate risk and climate change. So I think there's all of these connections around these kind of systemic issues and S is really at the heart of all of them.
0: Definitely. Well, thinking about sustainability and ESG at large, I think we did talk uh, about the fact how many women are actually in charge of ESG sustainability uh, at asset management companies. No offense, Adam. I'm very happy to have you with us. <laughs> and actually, the more the man in this area, the better. But what I thought was, again, if you have so many women in charge of this topic again, then they might be pushing more for climate and et cetera. So it's all interconnected in the end of the day, don't you think?
1: Absolutely, I mean, it's fascinating, I think. Um, And it'd be good to see a really solid study on this, but if you look at the Mm -hmm. the portion, you know, the the diversity on all its levels, not just gender, uh, but all types of diversity are pretty low in the financial (laughs) sector, I think, you know, versus some other sectors. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely different in sustainable finance. Um, and I think, you know, it's really attracted many women um, over the years. And I think now as sustainable uh, finance and sustainability is becoming really central to the strategy of many mainstream large asset managers, the talent pool of people who've been working in this space for a long time is much more diverse, right? So you're seeing a lot of women who are, who are who are also being promoted into positions of more responsibility with more influence and really able to help to um, you know, educate and, and promote these topics, um, you know, with, with more leverage and more impact, which is, is really exciting to see
0: mm-hmm Adam going back to engagement with American companies specifically well because you are engaging with companies around the world and european companies as well so do you think this kind of um, active dialogue and educational work you are doing differs in any way between again the us companies and european companies and if there are any difference where are the where are they the most stark if you may
2: i think I think it's sort of and I'm not sure this is exclusively um, uh, a regional difference, but, um, you know, you kind of have to meet companies where they are on the learning curve, mm-hmm. right? Um, and even, you know, among U.S. companies, right? There there are some U.S. companies, you start the conversation and, and you realize fairly quickly that they're very up to speed on this. You know, they have a very a very sophisticated understanding of the issues that you're discussing and they have people on it. That uh, you know that that have the appropriate expertise, um, and then there are other companies where you feel like you're starting at square one. Um, I think that's less common with European companies because mm-hmm. you know the overall context and the um, the appreciation for sustainability. I think is just sort of more embedded in in European culture than it than it has unfortunately been in, in American culture. Um, but you know, for a global global companies need to understand the global environment. And, um, you know, any global company that doesn't have a fairly sophisticated understanding of like the key sustainability themes and particularly um, both the key risks that they face and the risks that they are creating, um, mm-hmm. I think is behind the curve. You know, I, I think they they can't really have a full appreciation of what they're up against if, if they don't have that understanding. And I think we've moved to that phase with most, with most large companies. You know, it, it's um, uh, I've been in this field for a little over 20 years, engaging with companies on sustainability issues. And I remember some of those initial conversations, you know, 20 years ago about uh, human rights issues and supply chains, for example. And the companies would say, well, you know, we don't own those factories. So, you know, not really not really our problem right now Mm -hmm. there may still be companies that believe that but at least they're smart enough not to say it you know um it's less common to have the conversation and have them really have no understanding of what you're talking about you know what's interesting about this is that um the themes keep changing, the issues keep changing. Um, you know, you sort of keep coming back to some of the same ones, but with different, uh, sort of different color, different details. So this this question about migrant workers, for example, uh, it's been going on for a long time, but it's a relatively relatively new issue for investors and for companies. You will still find conversations with companies where they are not. They don't really understand what's going on. They're not mm-hmm. really up to speed on this one. Well, migrant workers, why are we raising, you know, why? Why are we talking mm-hmm. about compensating workers? Uh, what's that all about? Because the question here is that you have a fairly complex um, chain for somebody leaving their country to go to another country for a job. Um, they go through recruitment agencies. They go through sometimes several middlemen to get there. And they've paid, in many cases, they've paid a lot of fees along the way. And when they get to the job and they find that they're in debt for a year, two years, um, they're essentially working for nothing. They're working to pay off the person that got them the job. Um, and so we're asking companies to make sure that they're reimbursed for those fees and that they're not charged fees going forward. Nobody should have to, have to pay for a job. And you know, I had a conversation with a company a year and a half ago or so, where it was like, "Well, I don't understand. Why are we talking about writing a check? Why is it always writing a check? Why do we have to pay?" It's like, "Well, because essentially somebody in your supply chain stole money from your workers, and you're profiting from that. They have to be compensated." You know, so it's you, you meet them where they are, and and it's mm-hmm. like even within American companies, there there's a broad spectrum. You know, I, I, yes. I think of understanding.
0: And I think there is a big challenge as well for smaller companies to just keep up. And that concerns yeah. obviously having the manpower to just mine that data or just be aware of it. So in terms of well, both working with smaller companies as investments, so where do they start? Where is the easiest entry point when it comes to, for example, again, the pay of migrant workers and things like that? Is there an easy entry point to start wrapping their heads around it?
2: Well, there are industry associations um, that have come together as a responsible leadership uh, initiative, which is focused on migrant workers and this question of pay. Uh, there, there's a number of um, uh, business associations that have really done, I think, a good job um, sort of understanding the issues, creating standards and educating their members. So that's always one question that we ask is sort of, are you a part of these associations? Are you mm-hmm. are you playing an active role? Um, because the other thing that you find is that sometimes um, they're members just so that they can say that they're members um, and they're not really doing anything. You know, it's sort of a free rider question. But for a company that, uh, and for a small company, it can be difficult. And unfortunately, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, um, you know, our modern economy is uh, so fully integrated, right? So any company that's making anything uh, these days has a supply chain, right? And that supply chain is going to have multiple stages and maybe in in many countries around the world. And I can imagine, you know, for, for a small company that's just starting out, um, it can be very difficult to get your arms around that, you know? So I think the key lesson is, one, you do need to understand that there are um, some severe sustainability risks in that supply chain. Uh, You didn't create them, Uh, it wasn't your idea, it's not like you're happy about child labor, um, but it's there. And you have an obligation to know about it. You have an obligation to do your homework, to do your due diligence, to figure out uh, what's going on in your supply chain. And that's a difficult issue even for large companies you know, so certainly for small ones, but that there are others out there that can help you on this. You know, there are industry associations that are doing a good job. And I also hope that the conversations that they have with investors are helpful too. Mm. You know, we try to communicate that, look, we are your partners here. You know, we're here for the long run with you. Um, And we're concerned about these risks. We're happy to share resources. We're happy to sort of help you improve your policies. We're happy to connect you with people that we think are doing a good job. We're not here to beat you up about it. You know, mm-hmm. we're here to try to move things forward and try to improve things. Um, there's, you know, you don't really get anywhere to sort of like black hats and white hats. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's it's not, it's not about evil companies. It's about no. sort of recognizing the risks that you face and the risks that you're creating and uh, uh, appropriately um, addressing those.
0: Yes. Um, Well, Jane, you mentioned again that the social aspect of ESG is so complex. It has so many moving pieces. Well, obviously, even tax transparency comes into it. But again, uh, equal, equal pay, but then also payment packages for execs. So in terms of looking at the space and where it's headed next, so again, you mentioned that there are loads of indicators you're looking at already. But what is the next big thing when you think about, again, maybe in the editing, a new indicator or a new kind of aspect of the social aspect, for example?
1: Sure. I mean, it's a great question. When we think about this year, you know, we have already identified our, our three key uh, sustainability themes mm-hmm. and equality and inclusive growth is, is one of those. And so, as I mentioned, you know, we're working on a new fund and looking to try to direct more capital to investments. We also do a number of investments into social businesses. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's something that we're, we're also looking at um, continuing to support and expand. And it's, of course, it's been challenging for many of those businesses through the COVID crisis. So I think that this year, I mean, we're, you know, you see people's kind of New Year's wishes on Twitter and looking forward to a COVID-free 2021, right, with I think everyone coming out of the holidays and being really excited about the vaccine. Um, But now, of course, we have, you know, the news growing every day about the different strains. And I think many of us are bracing for more lockdowns. Some of you are already in more lockdowns. Um, so I think we will continue to feel the effects of COVID very strongly in 2021, and that will continue to be a very key S focus for us as investors. Um, but we're also cont- continuing to focus on topics like executive compensation, as you mentioned, and you know during the 2020 uh, proxy season. We had an opposition rate of 60% uh, on executive comp packages. So that's a very high number, you know, really reflecting our concern about that topic. Uh, we also saw an increase in our um, opposition rate around um, director um, elections relating to board diversity. So last year we rolled out a new policy where we expect to see 30% um, female representation mm-hmm. on boards in developed countries and at least one woman in emerging markets. So that's another area where we've had a significant amount of, of kind of dialogue with companies mm-hmm. and really a lot of you know action on the voting side. So I think that will be a key theme again this year. Um, but as you've both mentioned through this discussion, I think really expanding the, the diversity discussion uh, beyond gender, is a really important topic. And I think it's been one where the data has been difficult for many of us as global investors, where it's just not available in many regions. And that's been a real struggle, but I think it's something we we need to be creative about and, and really think about how we move past that. So I think that's gonna be another important uh, engagement topic for us in in
0: 2021. Mm-hmm. And being creative about it. Um, what do you mean by that in a way that what is there, again, to do? How can you actually figure out how to get that information?
1: Well, I think through discussions with companies to understand, I mean, in some jurisdictions are actually limited from providing some of that information. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's interesting to also talk about, um, as I you know touched on earlier, around mentorship programs, succession planning, um, mm-hmm training around unconscious bias. Uh, I mean there's a number of those types of programs that can be rolled out in the absence of specific data collection. So I think uh, from that perspective it's it's also around you know acknowledging the issue and the topic and really putting um, some weight behind that. you know Citigroup just recently put out uh, a new paper looking at um, the economic cost of discrimination in the United States over mm. the, the last 20 years, which was was really great to see. So I think it's an area where, you know, of course, we've seen a huge, huge amount of, of concern and coverage from a media perspective, but really kind of looking at it from an economic perspective and an investment perspective so that we can kind of be more concrete in some of those actions that we can take as an investors and as, as shareholders engaging with companies is really the next concrete step. hmm.
0: Adam, when you look back at 2020, obviously there were a lot of engagements on various themes and social aspects came to the fore and environmental aspects became as urgent as ever, basically. But if you were to evaluate all the engagements and efforts, stewardship efforts of the last year, what are, well, one or several um, moments you are most proud of to have achieved or something that moved up quite a bit from how you anticipated it being, for example, to start with?
2: Well, we had um, this is this is straying a little bit from the from the S theme, but um, we we received a, a historic vote um, on one of our shareholder proposals this year at Chevron um, mm-hmm. seeking um, a Paris-aligned climate lobbying report. We got a fifty-three percent vote um, the first time out, which. Um, You know, for a sustainability focused shareholder proposal, you don't generally get majority votes. We're we're Mm -hmm. seeing more of those um, each year, but it is still rare, Um, Mm -hmm. but you just, you know, to do it, to get a majority vote the first time the proposal was filed is really unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chevron actually just published a report in response to in response to that proposal just came out, um, I, I guess, a week or so ago, which which we're in the process of, of evaluating. Mm-hmm. And we've had really excellent discussions with them along the way about about the issue. So that um, I'm really pleased with that. And, and we're working with other investors to expand that effort. Um, more proposals will be filed. Um, the proposal that we used is being used now by other investors um, to raise this issue with uh, with other companies and you know going forward i'd like to think about uh you know this one is really focused on uh when you lobby let's make sure that it's aligned with the paris agreement let's make sure your trade associations are as well i'd like to expand that to other issues you know mm-hmm. um obviously companies are lobbying on a whole wide range of issues well can we think of like the the appropriate external benchmarks that they they should be using to measure those initiatives because we're talking about public policy right we're talking about rules that affect everybody. Um, So i'm hoping that that creates sort of an avenue to have that conversation. Um, And I, I think we're building towards some interesting conversations about resilience. You know, I think the theme really for this year, um, for me, I think is really it's the inequality and inclusive growth, the equality inclusive growth theme that that Jane mentioned, Um, and I'd add the term resilience to that. And I think it's clear that is the theme for 2020. That will be the theme going forward. Companies need to understand it. They need to understand how to incentivize resilience. They have to understand what does resilience mean for their company, and part of that means um understanding the key systemic safeguards um that we all depend upon like biodiversity for example which is going to be another one of our really key themes going forward um you you investors have to get their heads out of simply looking at you know individual securities and the risks that those individual securities face and looking at them more more holistically looking at the broader systemic um systemic issues and the systemic safeguards that we rely on so biodiversity is going to be a key one and how does that all link to society so we were talking at the beginning about the s and how these things are interrelated right Mm -hmm. well the pandemic um the coronavirus is a zoonotic disease meaning that it jumps from wildlife to humans um the key systemic safeguard there is far or really forests, right? Forests are a buffer that kind of protect us from those kinds of diseases. When we see wildlife trade and we see incursions into forests, these things come out and 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 reach society and and spread. So, um, we we have to we have to really understand how these things interrelate. We're not gonna we can't continue to police things apart as if they're discrete issues. And I'm hoping that understanding is reaching. Certainly the last year, we've been spending a lot of time speaking with other institutional investors about um, about biodiversity and about how these Mm -hmm. issues interrelate. And I think investors are getting it. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of excited to see what uh, what we're going to come up with and what our peers are going to come up with um, on these issues going forward.
0: A lot of interesting discussions today um, about all things ESG, especially societal aspect of it. So Adam and Jane, thank you very much for joining me today for this stimulating conversation.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.